Today, I'm talking with Jacob McEwen. Jacob is a therapist that works out of the Spokane area. And so today, we're going to talk about his journey through his healing process. Jacob specializes in evolutionary psychology. So we'll weave in a little bit of how evolutionary psychology and the practice that holds uh, helped him uh, understand how he can hold space for people through their path. But we also talk a lot about uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies, um, the understanding of an overactive default mode network and how that leads to depression comes up a little bit. Uh, this is a beautiful conversation. I'm really honored to talk with Jacob and appreciate his time. I hope you get some out of the conversation. We'll see you on the other side. All right, welcome back to our show. Uh, today I'm talking with Jacob McEwen. Uh, Jacob uh, has his master's in marital and family therapies and is currently practicing out in the Spokane area at a place called Anchor Counseling Services. And so Jacob was introduced to me by the person that introduces me to a lot of amazing humans, Miss uh, Miss Hannah Talbot. Uh, just passed the name along and was like, you should talk to this human. I think you really enjoy the conversation. He does a lot of great things. Uh, and uh, and I just, I, I love um, talking with people that, that do different things that I do, you know, and I, I don't know all the things. And one of my favorite ways to learn is by conversating. And, uh, and I, I think our intake call we had about a month ago was about an hour or so. So I'm like, we could have just recorded that and that could have been our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited to talk with Jacob. Um, so some of the things we're going to talk about today are, you know, his journey. I always love to hear about where people came from and how they've gotten to the piece that they found still working maybe, but still, you know, get that journey in there and then talk about some of the modalities that he works with and some of the ways that he helps the people in his life. So, uh, so Jacob, thank you so much for taking some time with us, brother. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Adam. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk with you. Yeah. My pleasure, man. Um, uh, so uh, why don't we just start off with your journey, man? So, um, so how did you kind of find your healing path? What are some of those struggles that you might've faced and, you know, those dark nights of the soul that we kind of face in those times? Yeah. Um, well, you know, as I say to have said to a lot of clients, like there isn't so much different in my life necessarily that puts me in the therapist chair versus them in the client's chair, right? Um, I think that's kind of like the the hidden truth of of the therapy world is that we all we all have kind of our our journeys there. So um, for me, um, you know, grew up here in Spokane, uh, grew up in like a Catholic family. Uh, pretty, pretty traditional values. And I really kind of struggled to, I guess, adjust to that, like in the face of like a changing world, you know, loving parents who really, really supported my curiosity. And at the same time, you know, as suddenly the advent of internet and <laughs> all of these, <laughs> you know, all of this exposure to the world around me and, you know, like seeing suffering and, and not quite being able to understand or find context for that um, really, really made things hard. Um, and as a result of that, I think I kind of like began introverting, I guess you would say, and then like kind of like the mental health sense and uh, started using substances at a pretty young age, actually, um, as like a coping mechanism, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's fun and games, uh, until the party has to end and, and you're not ready to go home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that was kind of in my background when I left for college. Um, and I think, and as a response to this, that confusion and feeling alienated in this modern world, I really 
dug into philosophy and theology actually mm. uh, and initially thought about becoming a priest okay uh, for, yeah so that was kind of my my first i guess dance or foray into the kind of spiritual was was deciding that that was something that was important enough to make a, a life of right mm-hmm. uh, studying the philosophy and the theology that supported all that um but never really finding that sense of peace um you know didn't ultimately go the priest route uh continued my studies in philosophy <laughs> um continued studying you know fine craft beer and, and whiskey as much as i could uh, more than i should <laughs> uh, I, I think that's kind of like the philosopher's plight in a lot of ways um but really kind of hit like a rock bottom sort of moment and all of that um was working in like a relatively successful marketing career um of like four years um still not sober um and struggling to really find meaning and and honestly kind of always going back to those philosophy and theology classes and kind of pulling from that and being like you know what is that essential truth like what is my relationship with this existence yeah what's the meaning of this all and what is my behavior (laughs) (laughs) contributing to all of that um so Finally decided to get sober and actually started working as a social worker. Um, Initially doing events and programming for a local like supportive housing agency. Um, But then COVID hit Mm -hmm. and suddenly (laughs) events and programs were not exactly on the menu anymore. So I had to pivot and figure out what else to do within the organization and, um, they needed social workers. So that's what I jumped into. Um, that's a tough field, man, especially and the journey of sobriety. Uh, I, I know a lot of people in social work that have turned to substances because of the social work. So like finding a sober path and being in so, social work is, that's got a, that had to have been a really, really tough, uh, tough situation for you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I should say that Part of me getting sober was actually volunteering at this agency so it was mm. kind of like that was part of my program was like you know what i'm gonna wake up every morning no matter how i'm feeling and go and help these folks uh so there was like some emotional buy-in okay. um when it all went down um and it was kind of i mean they were a part of my sobriety journey in that way so to see these people um, you know, in this circumstance, like suffering and to realize that you have the opportunity to step up for them in a way that they've inspired you before, Hmm. you know, I do. And and I, you know, as a, as a, as a, you know, a therapist of sorts, right. I'm not a therapist, but as people that as person that sees clients, uh, I, I, I have to say, man, like every person that I talk to has something that they're moving through that I'm also moving through. And if it's big movement, I'll have a, a string of clients that are all moving through the same thing in some kind of way. And I find myself giving advice to them that I need to be taking in turn for myself. You know, so I, I think there's a beautiful way that the, the world, the universe, whatever works in that kind of aspect to show you, you know, how strong 
that you really are because you know what you need to do because you're clearly helping this person through it. And it's, it's that remembrance of like, okay, now I need to do this for myself, right? Because I'm, I'm preaching this to somebody. So clearly I know the information works. I know the modalities work. Now I need to make the time so I can receive that, that I'm giving, right? And so finding the right practitioner to help hold that space for you. But it's just, you know, I remember the first few clients that I sat with, I was almost flabbergasted. I'm like, wow, this person's going through the same shit I am. And then you see it over and over again. It's like, no, that's the continuation of your work. Because you still need to do your work while you're helping people, but now you have almost like a mirror that's mirroring back the work that you need to do so you can see what help needs to be given to the person and in turn take that for yourself. No, I, I really do believe that. Um, I think kind of like what you're putting out there, you attract back to yourself in a lot of ways. And the things that you're working through and trying to fix for yourself, those are the things that you're best equipped to help other people with. Yeah. Because you have that experiential knowledge of going through that. Yeah. And then you also have those moments like, you know, when COVID did hit where it was like the gauntlet got thrown down and it was like, how important is this to you? <laughs> like, you know, like, are you willing to say the things to these clients that you're having a hard time hearing yourself right now? Mm. You know? Yeah. Because um, <laughs> it does swing the other way. Because, you know, you're like, oh, sweet. I know exactly what to say. And then you're like, oh man, I'm about to say something that like, I can't even really hear myself right now, you know? Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, that's where, that's where the stickiness happens. And I think that's where the big growth works is that, you know, you can hear yourself almost, you know, like you said, you're, you're speaking something to somebody that you know works, but you're too whatever to do it for yourself. You're too afraid. You don't want the change. You're not strong enough, whatever that thing that we say to ourselves. But it's like, as you catch yourself saying that thing, it's like, damn it. I am strong enough. I just, for me, it's like, I just got to be, I got to stop being so stubborn. Like my stubbornness will take over and will justify anything. And if I let it do it, it's going to do it. I know it will do it. So I need people around me to challenge that stubbornness and really get me out of that, that modality because that mindset for me is toxic, you know, cause I can, I can definitely make that rationalize with myself and be like, get fucked. I already make this. I, I figured this out. <laughs> so I need those people in my life that will challenge that because that, that just, we need that stickiness out of there. No, truly. And, and I think that like humility and gratitude when you're doing that work is so important because of that. Right. Like, cause like, man, I'll tell you what, like I've learned more from those interactions with clients about myself than than out of any book, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and you can't, like gratitude is the only way to respond to something like that. And you're only going to get there if you have the humility while you're doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. So with your, with your sobriety, was it cold Turkey? Did you have a program that you followed or were you just kind of, you know, gritting so it, it was kind of a haphazard process to be honest. Um, I became super disenchanted with Catholicism and Christianity over the years. And so going into an AA program, especially here in town where it didn't really feel like there were a ton of like secular kind of approaches at the time, um, just wasn't really my speed. So I did something that I had been super resistant to my entire life, which was, uh, sign up and get a therapist. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I knew that I had problems. I'd had, I'd received some mental health treatment in the past um, for some different things. Uh, and obviously I'd been drinking. Hmm. So I knew that was an issue, but I was 
always like, no, I'm not going to talk to somebody about my problems because of that humility thing. I was not present at all. Right. <laughs> um, so I actually wound up working with this person and it was like kind of one of those things where it's like, Hey, we're going to see you for X amount of sessions. And at that point in time, we'll have to refer you out, you know, hmm. kind of a classic community mental health situation. Um, but they really held space for me in a way that was different um, and non-judgmental mm. in a way that I had never experienced before, especially in trying to navigate my issues around substance use. Right. Um, and it completely shifted how I thought about navigating this as a problem. And, or even thinking about it as a problem and or versus like an experience that I'm having right now that I need to like resolve and, and how to, I guess, find context for where it was coming from. Yeah. And I think that's probably the biggest thing for me was just kind of like, Oh shit. Like you didn't just, you know, lose the genetic lottery and turn into an alcoholic. Right. Um, there are contributing factors to that and you don't need to own all the guilt and shame associated with, you know, being Irish. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's, it's, it's such a hard thing, you know, especially when we're going through our sobrieties and I, and the, what I went through is, uh, you know, it's like, I, I, I didn't want to let go of the stories. Right. Once I finally found, you know, unpacked the reason why I started drinking and, you know, once when I got sober and, you know, thought everything was really great once I got sober and it's like, no, now you uncovered the reason why you started drinking. Now the real work starts to happen. And, you know, that can be really scary for a lot of us because maybe we're not ready to, we don't think we're ready to face that, that, that trauma point of maybe the start of the reason why you started drinking for whatever it is. Right. Sometimes it's abuse. Sometimes it's mental issues. Sometimes it's invert introvertedness, right? There's, there's all, you know, whatever reason, right. And we, we, we turn to substances, but it's, it's, it's understanding like you can peel that stuff away, right? There's different ways, there's different modalities that you can approach. For me, I, I'm similar, you know, I, I was very, very turned off from anything religious based. Um, AA was something I went to when I was court mandated back when I first got my first DUI years and years ago. <clears throat> and I was like 22, you know, not in a good place mentally, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and I remember I had to go to court ordered, uh, um, uh, you know, alcoholics or AA meetings. And it was just such, it was, it was like pulling teeth. Like I did not want to be there. Mm -hmm. The energy that I brought into that place definitely brought it down. Cause I was this punk ass little bastard in the corner with my arms crossed, like huffing and like people's stories, you know? And in my head, I was like, well, at least I didn't sell my kids toys for alcohol or crack. You know, it's like, I'm better than that. It's like, no, we're all going through our shit. Right. And so, but, but the, the, the religious overtone didn't land with me. And I knew that, you know, whether I, you know, you know, talking shit in my head about whatever ignorant shit I was doing at the time. But once I finally got sober and I, I got sober through plant medicines, more or less, like I, I, I really sat with a lot of, uh, you know, different uh, journeys with plant medicines, with uh, psilocybin, it really helped to kind of pry that, that understanding of why I started drinking and why I thought that was my identity started to pry that away. And then, um, uh, about a year into my sobriety, I had a really close friend of mine that, that, hit the rock bottom, you know, and, and we, we, you know, we pulled him up and, and he was not wanting to go to meetings, but thought that a meeting might be a good starting point. 
And so we went to a meeting and it was my first meeting back since I was like 22. Right. And so I was like, ah, oh, you know, kind of trepidatious about it. You know, I'm like, ah, uh, you know, but I went, went in there and I, and I felt, I felt welcomed, you know, and it was like, I, I, I'd found my way to remove the religious overtones from it and just see the embracing of the meeting that it was and the community that it was there. And was even like when they came around and said, you know, introduce the new people, I stood up and said, Hey, my name's Adam and I'm, I'm an alcoholic. So I was confident enough to finally say that, even though there was in that, that religious overtone, but, uh, but I didn't didn't continue on and he didn't continue on because it just as as much as I could see it helping the people that had helped, it wasn't my jam. It it wasn't going to help me. It wasn't going to help this human. So knowing now that there's different ways out there, you know, non, uh, non religious ways, you have your plant medicine base, you have like different types of support groups that you can go to that, that isn't following a 12 step and doesn't have to be a religion based kind of thing. You can really build that modality the way you need it to. No, totally. And it's funny you bring that up because I actually, as I kind of started going through my journey, before I moved back to Spokane, I had a good friend who was kind of like, honestly, like my drinking buddy mm-hmm. who kind of hit rock bottom and decided to get sober. And that was big for me because I'd never had like a friend. I was I was pretty young. I'd never have a, had a friend suddenly be like, hey, this is a problem for me and I need to quit. And I was like, whoa. What's going on there? Perspective shift. Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, And the way that they decided to go about it, um, you know, they got involved in AA, but a big part of their recovery was going to Buddhist meditation. Mm, Cool. And getting involved in Dharma recovery, um, which is kind of like a, you know, Four Noble Truths kind of based um, recovery program. And I remember as I started going through my own experience of getting sober you know those those thoughts like the craziness of like my mind just the activation and suddenly you know all of the anxiety that I'd been hiding from Mm -hmm. with with alcohol use suddenly was present and I went back to suddenly those sessions with my friend who you know looking looking back and we even talk about it now, like he was doing his best to kind of get me on the way, you know, yeah. he was like, I was still hung over from the night before and he'd still be like, Hey, I'm going to come over and pick you up for boost meditation. I'd be like, cool, bro. Like, <laughs> like brushing my teeth and stuff. Um, but that mindfulness aspect and my counsel, my, you know, my therapist that I was working with didn't really bring that in. And I actually asked about it like, Hey, what do you know about like mindfulness stuff? Blah, blah, blah. I've been so disconnected from that and I just started breathing hmm. like I didn't really have like a teacher or somebody to like really work with and then the, and then the pandemic hit and it was like I really had nobody to like you know everything was shut down and I was like oh okay well what do I do here yeah um so I just leaned into that really hard um and leaned into knowing that if i could get things quiet inside my head that like that was at least a better thing for the day like we weren't talking about like anything esoteric or like healing or we were just like how do i get the stories that i heard today out of my head mm, yeah so i can go some more stories tomorrow yeah that's i it, it's it's funny I, I i my path was very similar in that spe- aspect you know just finding meditation and just you kind of grin and bear it you know going at it out of your own and just seeing how it works yeah. and you know cl- and, and when we can quiet down that mind like you talked about you know it's it's 
it's, it's allowing us to really hear how we truly see ourselves and speak to ourselves. And for the majority of the people that I've spoken to and from my own personal experience, it's not fucking nice the way we talk to ourselves and the way that we hold ourselves. You know, we are so beautiful and gentle to like the loved ones in our lives, you know, like the kids and the other, you know, parents or whatever it is. But we talk so much shit to ourselves and we're so angry and, and abusive to the way we, we treat ourselves just from like simple language. Like one of the things I'm working, I have uh, two daughters, 14 and 19, and my, my 14 year old freshman in high school does like soccer, choir, volunteer, fucking running start, you know, all the things that you could possibly do busier than any adult I've ever met, you know, and most of these kids these days really are with all the extra extracurricular shit they have going on. And, and I talked to her the other day and I'm like, Hey, Harps, how's your day been? She's like, Oh, it's been a lazy day. I've just been lazy. I didn't have soccer. So I've just been being lazy all day. And I'm like, girl, you need to, okay. Like, I understand you're not really being mean to yourself, but this is where it starts, right? You're not being lazy at all. Please take that vocabulary out of your vernacular, right? You are a busy human being that needs to recharge and reset. Take the lazy out of it. I'm resting today, right? Be okay Okay. with being restful, right? Because that, that word lazy, that's the start of us talking shit to ourselves. And then it's like, oh, well, I didn't get shit done today because I was lazy. Oh, now I'm a piece of shit. Oh, whatever, whatever, right? All these stories start to get spun in our head. And before we even know it, we're our own worst enemy and we're the only person we're talking to on a regular basis, right? And there's no good that can come from that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of spooky to think about how many expectations are just built into the language we use <laughs> about ourselves. Like, you know, it's like this... It's kind of like perfectionism is just kind of hidden in there in a way, right? It's yep. like, oh, I'm being lazy because I'm supposed to be doing something else, obviously. Yep, yep. And, you know, and it's funny because, I mean, you work in evolutionary psychology, and I, I would love to see, like, where this started to fucking happen. When did the hunters and gatherers finally start lamenting about, like, oh, I didn't catch that deer. I'm going to go over here and just <laughs> pout by the tree now and, like, think about how bad I am. It's like, no, you just you continue on and you find the next fucking deer or the buffalo, whatever the hell it is, right? Yeah. And then, like, I get the spiders. I get the snakes. I get, like, the evolutionary stuff that we're, like, it, it's within our DNA in a way, right? That, that mm-hmm. just kind of carries over. But, like, where the story started coming from and the negative self-talk and how that just became part of our societal norms in a way. I don't know if that's something that, that kind of comes up in the evolutionary psychology side, but uh, I, I think it's just fascinating how this just keeps carrying over and over and over. Well, I mean, it's kind of like a leisure. <laughs> okay, right. You know, like... At- like there was a point in time where we did not have the the uh, the privilege of being able to complain about you know <laughs> missing the deer. It was like okay, well, where's the next one? That's a great point. Yeah. So as we uh, start to, and it's funny because you know I was actually listening to somebody talking the other day, and they were talking about how there's an argument out there that says that a homeless person in in today's time lives theoretically better than John D. Rockefeller did in his time, and the argument is because we have things like penicillin, internet, you know, regular communication now, but John D. Rockefeller was. In, in today's terms, we adjust for inflation. He's the richest person that we know of, right? He would have had mm-hmm. a, a half a billion or a, a half a trillion dollars, right? That's bonkers. And what the argument to that, the counter argument is, is when, the, when the, the standard of living is raised, everything just gets bumped up. It becomes the new social norm, 
right? We don't, we don't adjust and be like, oh, because we have internet, now we're doing great. It's like, no, that just becomes a social norm. And then we start to build classism and socialism and all that shit on top of mm-hmm. that, you know? So, you know, it's, it's interesting about like that same thing with evolution, you know, as we evolve, it's not like, you know, yes, we're getting better, but that the betterness just becomes a standard. It doesn't become like something that's vastly different than somebody else. Now, if you have, you know, if there's like wealth gaps and things like that, then that's mm-hmm. something different. But when it's a standardized living kind of idea, that just becomes the norm. Yeah. You know, Kierkegaard talks a lot about this concept. Like mm-hmm. he very much was kind of looking at the transition into the modern age and was not not very happy with what he's seeing because he saw that kind of individual excellence was being kind of stifled. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this idea of like leveling where it was like, oh, if this good thing is happening, then it should be happening for everybody, but it should be happening at like kind of the same amount and about the same rate and like don't be too great or else like you might threat like upsetting the crowd in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and if we want to encourage this idea or fantasy of like excellence and risk and like growth and progress. But in reality, it's like we kind of like are always like pulling people back into the herd. Yeah. There's a book I'm reading right now called the end of average and it's uh, Ted Rose, I believe. Uh, and it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm so just, I, I love books like this that just blow my mind. And what, the, one of the things he talks about is how, like, I think it was the 1870s is when um, as a, as a, as a country, the United States started looking at people as an average. Right. And so, uh, averages have been around for, for a long time, right? They've been an option for a while, but we never looked at a mass population as an average until like the 1870s in the United States. But then that became the standard, right? And so let's take like the, the brain scans, right? So let's say we have a thousand brain scans. We take all the average, we take all those scans, average them together. And so say now we say like, okay, frontal lobe feels this, back lobe feels this, hemisphere right feels this, mm-hmm. right? But if you really, and this is the point the guy makes, Ted Rose makes, is that when you take all those 1,000 brain scans and you separate them and compare them against the average, not one single person meets that average. Not one person, right? And so where do the tests they talk about is like uh, they, they were trying to standardize the cockpits for fighter jets in the 40s. Yeah. And they took 4,000 pilots, all the 4,000 pilots they had in the Navy, in the air force and they, they categorized them in nine different qualifiers, like distance from eye to ear, distance from arm to, to fingertips, you know, so everything that you needed for a cockpit. And they were like, Oh, out of these 4,000 people, these nine qualifiers, we'll see how many percentages meet this average zero, Mm -hmm. not a single fucking person met that average. And when they knocked it down, they kept removing qualifiers to get to somewhere where they could find an average. They finally got it down to three qualifiers out of the nine and only 17% of the people fit that. So, you know, in a way, like we keep, we've, we've set this standard of an average. And originally when this, when this, this, uh, mentality first came out, it was how to be the average. How can we be the average? Like there was a, there was a, a company, a clothing company that, uh, ran an ad campaign where they took like a a couple thousand women's, uh, sizes, like, you know, body sizes, Mm -hmm. averaged them together to create the perfect woman. And they called her Norma. And then they ran a contest to say, hey, American women, enter in your sizes and we'll see who's the closest to Norma and you're going to get a prize. Out of the thousands of people that entered, nobody came close to the sizes of Norma because nobody is average, right? And so we've been continuing, we continually 
just trying to reach the average. And now we're saying now we're above average, below average, but we still mm-hmm. don't have an actual average. So it's like we're chasing this thing that doesn't actually exist, right? The way the human being is, and this is to kind of talk about that individuality you, you spoke of, we, we've got to get back to the individual human because we are so unique that if you're looking at a mass populace, yes, maybe an average works, right? But if you're looking at the mm-hmm. individual, there's no way the individual is going to be anywhere near average. So getting no. that out of our vernacular and just like embracing that individualism again. It totally is. And it, and it's, it's weird. Cause like, it's almost like we've created this, like the perfect thing to do be is exactly average. <laughs> so it's like this weird logical thing that we've created in all of our minds that just like destroys creative heroism and like excellence because it's like, well, I either need to be absolutely perfect or retreat to this other, you know, imaginary standard that exists, which uh-huh. is average, be average and be lost in the crowd. Yeah. We're creating these unattainable goals, right? And it's mm-hmm. and, and, and no wonder we talk shit about ourselves because down deep and subconsciously, we know that we're not that. And so like we, we talked about a while back about remembering. So I think yeah. this is part of that, you know, I love when people talk about like the great resign that happened, right? When people didn't want to go back to work. I don't fucking blame them. Work sucks, right? The way our work system's set up, it's bullshit, right? And so, but I think a lot of what's happening with this younger generation coming up that is disenchanted, disenfranchised with the systems that are happening, I think there is a bit of this remembering of like, we're not doing this right, Yes. There's a better way to do this. And it's like that 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 consciousness is finally starting to come back at mm-hmm. an earlier time. Like it's definitely able to get there as we start to unpack this shit. But I see these kids being born into more awareness. And I think a lot of that is that remembering of like, Mm-mm, nope, sorry, I'm not going to work my entire life to make somebody else rich and to, to, to starve and to barely get by. Yeah, that it, make it's amazing sense. what a global pandemic will do for people in terms of their awareness of their mortalities and then the choices they make as a result of that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really grateful that like the younger generation got to see that. Like I'm really like, it's been, I had the unique opportunity while I was going through my master's degree of working at a high school and doing like um, some like, you know, individual education plan sort of stuff. Mm. But what struck me was how insightful and aware and how little tolerance for for like adult bs the teens had <laughs> and and like i would i'd be working with a kid and they, i'd be like why haven't you done any of your homework and they're like and they're like why would i do my homework and then they would be like here are all of the things going on in the world and like this is what i'm dealing with at home and you're up, you're calling me and you're pulling me out of class to complain about the one assignment. I didn't, what are you, what's your problem? And I'm like, you're right. Wow. Go back to class. Wow. Like, you know, and I'm like, it's, it is like a, it is a very different vibe, um, with the younger kids. And I think you're, you're hitting on something there. I think there's like this, this awareness of the fact that, you know, we, we've all been playing this kind of game that is called, human society for so long we kind of forgot why we do some of the things we do mm-hmm. and a lot of people just were like why do i have to sit in the desk for eight hours right. when i only do four hours of work 
<laughs> well, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, and, and it, it, again, in this book, and I've, I've, I've read this before, but I, you know, it kind of got brought up in the book. Um, but they talk about the, the, the education system that we have in the States and how it was developed and how it was designed. And actually the aforementioned John D. Rockefeller was one of the investors in the, the help of creating our school system. And, and it's very, this is very public. This isn't like conspiracy shit. This isn't like, oh, you got to go dig for this. This is open information you can find anywhere. Our public school system was created to create workers. And it was not created to, to, um, to help everybody get the same education. It was created to find out who we thought was above average from the averages that we had set. And then we put those people into like management or, or acronym roles or whatever. And then we kept everybody else that didn't meet that standard in a certain box so they could be the worker bees. They could go to the factories. They could do the, the, the grunt work. And they didn't have to interact with the people that had, quote, unquote, a higher education or a higher IQ. Right. And again, that's all bullshit. Like we're, we're averaging things together into something that's just completely convoluted. Right. And so like our, our entire school system is based off of creating average mundane workers. And if we have a class of people that is like, I don't want to do that, the school system is going to end up failing. And not to say that it doesn't need to be changed, but I'd have to see it doesn't fail. Maybe just, you know, rework it, not blow it up to rebuild it. But Clearly, that's not working, and the next thing from school is work. That's not working, right? And so it's like, when are we going to get to a point to where we start to adjust these systems to where they meet the human being and the human isn't forced to meet yeah. the system? And I think, I mean, in terms of mental health, I mean, a big part of the marriage and family therapy program is kind of taking the systemic lens and kind of saying, okay, yes, I've got an individual here, but they're a part of so much other stuff that's happening out here. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea of like, what is normal, like what is normal in terms of mental health? Um, you, you were talking about like, you know, using statistical averages. Um, part of the work that I did as part, during my training was biofeedback and we work out of a normative database of thousands and thousands of brain scans to essentially determine what is normal brain activity, okay. right? And if you have too much or too little of this, you know, mean average of these thousands of people, then based on EEG metrics, there's something wrong, kind of. I mean, it's not normal, right? Which is a cute dog whistle for it's wrong. Yeah. It's not perfect. Um, it was really kind of difficult doing that work sometimes because you would have people come in and, and they would describe who they are as a person and how their brain functions. And you would take a brain scan and they would look at the brain scan and there'd be these kind of like dark blues and reds indicating like deficiencies or excesses of certain bandwidths of uh, brainwave activity. And they'd be like, Oh my God, like, what does this mean? Like, do I have a problem here? And I'd have to be like, no, 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 no. Like, you said that you're a musician. Well, then it would make sense that your parietal lobes, which are involved in a lot of your internal and abstract and creative thinking are much more active than everybody else. And we would not want to do anything to adjust that. Yeah. It would change who you are. You're one of the first person I've, I've, I've talked to that takes that, that I've heard of that takes that time to, to explain, no, 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 no. This is what your scan means not the scan compared to the averages, you know, let's not get freaked out because you didn't meet the average. Let's 
understand why that thing is there, right? Because there's something within your physical construct, the things that you do, the way that you think, the way that you react that, that causes this thing to happen. It's not a red flag. There's an explanation behind it. No, totally. And, and not only is there an explanation behind it, but it's, it's necessarily so Mm. like it is the necessary product of all of your experiences and everything that's happened and your genetics and the epigenetics and the way that trauma and stress has kind of shaped and molded your experience. Um, and then suddenly this, you know, and you spend enough time talking with people, what you realize is they really don't want to give this up. Yeah. They want to see this as beautiful, which I mean, in a lot of ways it is. You take the time. Hmm. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a study I've read recently, um, kind of to, uh, to piggyback on what you're talking about with the, the way that the brain kind of manifests, but it's, um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a test that doctors do with babies, uh, infant to say nine months, 10 months old. And it's called the baby step reflex. So basically it's like you grab the baby, you pick the baby up and immediately the baby's legs start moving like they're walking. Mm-hmm. And from pretty much from birth until about two months old on average, again, average, uh, is when the babies are able to just naturally have that reflex. So when you pick it up, the baby's legs just start moving like they're walking. Around two months, it stops. And then around eight or nine months, it starts back up again. And so this has been one of those delineated markers that doctors and pediatricians measure, look for. And let's say that your baby um, is still having that baby step reflex at three months. Now, they say that's, that, that's a, a precursor to a neurological disorder. So you need to be cautious Right. And that's been the that's been the, uh, the the way it's been talked about for decades. Right. And it wasn't until maybe about 10 years ago, there was a there was a female uh, scientist. I can't remember where she's from, but she's like, let me look into this. Like, I, you know, I got I got some time. I want to look into this and just see what's going on. And what she found was that it had nothing to do with the neurology of the baby. It had everything to do with how fat the thighs of that child was. And the bigger the thighs, the less the muscle had developed. And it wasn't even just as big. It was how big they got, how fast they got. Because if, if, if the thighs got really big in a fast way, then the muscles don't react. And so you're going to have less movement. And if your thighs are thinner, you're going to have more movement because the muscles can react more. Had nothing to do with any kind of neurological disorder. So for how long right. have we been sending parents into this franticness about thinking their kids has something wrong with their head? just because their thighs and their legs didn't move the way that we thought they should have moved. You know, so creating, again, we're creating all of these stories now for these parents to now think that their kid, and is it the thought alone that is going to turn that kid into what the parent thinks? Because now we're treating it for this thing. Now we have this, this, uh, this mentality around what we think is happening, and do we manifest yeah. all that through the thoughts that we actually have? Because we know that there's research about like how kids turn out when they have neurotic parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're feeding parents a bunch of information that's like making them concerned that their you know flesh and blood has something wrong with them, how is that going to ultimately impact the longitudinal development of that child? Yep. You know. <laughs> and I read a, I read a Harvard study not too long ago, and I can't remember the exact study it was, but they basically were saying that uh, it's now hypothesized, and this is the study they were working on that. It's, and this is staggering. 70% of our illnesses is caused by our thought. We think ourselves into 70% of the, the illnesses that we have. Man. And that's, uh, that's bonkers to me to think about. I will say this 
to that is that I have looked at a lot of like brain scans and there is something to be said about the correlation between like cognitive symptoms and how it shows up in the central part of the brain that kind of speaks to the body. Okay. Um, like we talk about like the cingulate gyrus, which is kind of like this structure within the brain that it's like kind of the, almost like the, the bridge between like the subcortical to the, to the actual prefrontal cortex. Um, and it's really weird because there's this very specific brain wave called sensory motor rhythm. And we will often see changes in that brain wave um, associated with like anxiety or stress or depression. But that brain wave is very specific to the body itself hmm. and bodily functioning. So it begs the question when we're seeing, you know, EEG signatures where like SMR is impacted and it's kind of consistent across different like diagnoses like mental health diagnoses Mm -hmm. necessarily there's there's some sort of physical effect happening as a result of that so right now in in, research research pending like i mean there's something to be said there yeah and you know this is you know i hadn't planned on talking to you about this but this has kind of been coming up in just randomly you know you start you know, pit, uh, working down through certain subjects and all of a sudden things start expanding out in front of you. And, yeah, yeah. and two of the things that kind of came up recently is, uh, you know, with depression, we talked, you just talked about, um, uh, there are studies now that, that relate, uh, depression to overactive default mode networks, right? So basically we're so conscious and aware of what we're doing and the, the pattern that we need to be in that if we don't follow that pattern, it throws us all off. And that's where a lot of the depression comes from. And when I heard that, I looked at myself and I'm like, wow, I'm a very ritualistic human. And if, you know, if something doesn't go right in my life, then it does throw that pin in my life. And it's like, fuck, now I start to see everything unravel, you know? So that one did kind of land with me at a bit. And then there's another one that, and I haven't, I don't think this is an official term and I've heard uh, another term, but I can't remember it, but it's this called holistic derangement syndrome. And the way I, the, the context I heard this in okay, is, so we have, let's take biohackers, right? People that, you know, that, you know, so if I take 10,000 steps before breakfast and I eat 12 grams of protein for lunch and then I do uh-huh. my breath work and then I do this. And so we know all these things that we can do for our bodies to help us out. But does the knowledge of that, just the sole knowledge of it and us still not doing it cause the, de- the depression, right? So I know that I take, if I take 10,000 steps before breakfast, I'm going to be a healthier human, but I still can't find time to do that. So now I've created a story about how shitty I am for not taking 10,000 steps before breakfast, which I haven't even done it to know if it actually works. I've just read about it, right? I've read how to optimize my, my humanness but I haven't found the time. So now just that knowledge alone has made me depressed. Uh, that's like, <laughs> that's the existential shit that's coming up. I think for a lot of people right now is yeah. like, you know, you have the freedom to live your life however you want. And you have the unfortunate responsibility of making a choice as to what that looks like. And now, you know, whereas in the past, like the choice was like, do I use the pitchfork or the shovel today? It's now like, you know, 
which of these thousands of apps would you like to download to resolve this very specific problem you're experiencing at this point in your life? And also there's, you know, add-on features that you can pay money for. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think that creates like this whole anxiety of choice. Um, because I've had, I've, I've heard people debate over like which type of yoga they should do full well knowing that neither of them have attended a yoga class in the last year. And it's kind of like, well, maybe if you just went to like a yoga class, who cares what type it is, there'll be some net benefit. So, like, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, like we can get lost in this like analysis paralysis. And I think, you know, more information isn't always better. Yeah. And I think it can, depression is a very cognitive disorder in that way where it is very much about that internal self-talk and kind of getting caught in this loops and not being able to imagine different possibilities for life. Right. So yeah, I suffer from decision fatigue quite a bit. You know, that Mm was something I didn't realize till I got out of my corporate life, you know, cause I, I, you know, I was a a manager, GM operations manager, all that stuff. And so like I had people under me and I had decisions and all that shit. And and you get so reflexive with it because it just, it's part of your life. You know, it's like, Oh, here's a decision. And they're not always the best, but you're the one making them. So you just got to do it sometimes and fix it in the back end. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I finally got out of that life and started to slow things down. And, and I found myself still trying to be the decision maker, even though I didn't want to, it was like a reflex that I just was moving towards. And then my spouse would get pissed at me. My kids would get pissed at me. He's like, dude, let us make our own fucking minds up. I'm like, well, the, the question was posed and I just threw an answer out. It didn't have to be the answer, but there you go. And then when I finally, it, it just started to peel that back. I felt how exhausted I was, but then I went to the other way and I was completely passive and like, nah, do whatever, do whatever, do whatever. And that pissed people off too. Cause they're like, fucking make a decision. I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it, you know, but I relate it, to that. yeah, it's like you had to go through those two, you know, the two sides to, to find that middle path, you know, that middle path mm-hmm. and whatever that means for you. And it's, it's incredibly hard sometimes, (laughs) (laughs) even as a therapist, it's funny. I mean, we're talking about this, like, I know we kind of think like looping back into our own stuff, but you know, it's like, so I just spent, you know, two years studying, you know, therapy after having studied philosophy. And then I jumped into like neurofeedback and learning about depth psychology and all the things I still get depressed. Right. I still get anxious. Um, there are still days that I wish I could sleep through. Right. And knowing a thousand different ways to resolve that has not has not taken that away away from me. And it actually add, does add a layer of like, oh shoot, like what am I even doing here? Mm. You know. I can't even do a, a breath, like, you know, just do like a simple breathing exercise. Like, and here I am like touting that I can run biofeedback or whatever. And like, you know, yeah, it's a vicious here I am cycle, getting man. short with the kids, you know, like it's like, yep. Yep. But, you know, I think there's, you know, when we were talking about averages earlier, you know, we're, we're on a spectrum of emotions, 
Like, you know, there's no normal for emotions. And we talk about spectrums usually with neurodivergence and stuff like that. But I think that all, there's eight and a half billion people. There's no way that we're not all on a spectrum, right? A spectrum of emotions, right? But I think being able to embrace the emotion that you're in and not being overtaken by it, right? Um, let's take fear, for example, right? We're, you know, with uh, with your evolutionary psychology, we're, we're, you know, resound to a lot of fear, right? Spiders, snakes, darkness, cold, things like that. That's just kind of carried over. But if we don't take the moment to hear what fear has to say, fear is going to be louder and more obnoxious next time it has that message because it still needs you to hear that. So it's, it's, you have the discernment to act on the, the message that you mm-hmm. hear, but take the time to hear it, hear what grief has to say, hear what joy has to say. You know, Brene Brown talked about it. This not too long ago, how we can't even fully embrace joy because we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're waiting for failure to happen or fear to come back or grief to strike, you know? So we're not even fully embracing the joyful moment of our kid graduating or, you know, buying a new car, whatever the hell it is for us, because we're waiting to be disappointed again. Right. So like, understand, like move into those understandings, right? Feel the, feel the emotion. That's, I think, you know, one of those beautiful paradoxes that we're struck with in this journey is that, you know, you know, in a a way you could look at, we chose to be here, right? There's a spirit in us that said, you know what, I'll take this call. I'll go down for this little blip of time into this earth plane, experience all the emotions, some beautiful, some toxic, some crazy, some amazing, but it's all part of that human experience. And so feeling that and understanding like, this is the reason we're here is to feel these emotions, not get caught up in them, but to feel them, understand them, embrace them, you know, figure out how to deal with fear figure out how to understand your anxiety, you know, but don't keep pushing that shit away. Totally. And I, uh, I think uh, it was Dan Siegel. He's like a neuroscientist talks about the idea of like a window of tolerance of emotions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we kind of have our upper threshold and our lower threshold and we tend to kind of move through that through the day and, Nobody has, there's no standard for that. There's just absolutely no standard for that. And there's kind of like the social engagement zone that we all kind of can operate in, or at least try to operate in. But for the most part, we all have different tolerances for that shit. And that's the beautiful thing in life. Like, you know, like you find those people who compliment you. Um, That's also the really hard thing in life is you have those people who just do oil and water Mm -hmm. and, um, it's, it's just the way it is and trying to like, you know, crystallize it or make it more simple than that. It's just never gonna, never gonna happen. And you, it's, you, it's funny, you know, you're talking about kind of feeling those different emotions and fear. Like I find fear to be such an interesting emotion in the modern age because it's like kind of going back to like, you know, the person on the street or even like Rockefeller. It's like, yeah, look at like Rockefeller. Like he had all the money in the world. Like he was still living in a world where if he got like too sick, he was done. Yeah. You know, um, he was still living in a world where like, if he went too far out into the wild, like he might not come back. Right. Mm-hmm. We do live in a world where we're relatively safe compared to how it used to be all things considered. So when we experience things like fear, like how interesting, like how, how much information and how rich of an experience is that to have to like, really like lean into that and be like, wow, I'm afraid right now. Mm -hmm. 
like what's bringing that up for me? Because, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, if I was feeling afraid, I would just look up in the trees and look around me and say like, oh, there must be like some animal that I can't quite see. Right Mm -hmm. now it's like, wow, what parts of my history are being brought up right now? Like what things are happening in this environment that I might not be like consciously aware of that I should maybe tune into like, yeah. Being in touch with our emotional experience can be just an incredibly rich layer that I think so many people miss out on in and of itself. Yeah. Well, and you know, something just sparked whenever you said that, because, you know, we're in a society, at least in the West, where we're, we're not really taught to, to, to understand our intuition or to, to lean into it at all. And, you know, and, and we even have common practices now, just, you know, just that's over-the-counter stuff like Tylenol, ibuprofen, that that deepens that that release of intuition because if we have a pain, we take a medicine, and we don't feel that pain anymore. So we're basically telling our bodies, don't listen to that. You're fine. Don't mm-hmm. pay attention to that knee pain. It's all good. So we keep pushing ourselves away from our intuition, and our intuition is what allows us to step into our emotions. You know, our intuition shows us like, hey, there's you're afraid. Look around, like you said, there might be something hiding. But now we right. just hear fear, and we're just like, no, 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 don't want that fear, don't want that grief, you know. So we're we're abandoning even on a deeper level what our emotions are telling us because that intuition that that brings it up, we just keep pushing it down or stepping aside, or we'll deal with that later, right? And when when the hell's later going to come? Right? Yeah, you know, we call uh, it's funny we call the uh, the midsection, you know, our hips, our low back, and our our abs. We call that the junk drawer of the body in the in the yoga world, because whatever we don't deal with, it just kind of keeps getting pushed mm-hmm. down, pushed down, pushed down, and then we have disease. You know, we have our back problems, we have our hip problems, we have mobility issues because we're not dealing with those traumas or those emotions as they come up, and then they find these little pockets in our body to hide in and camp out and create all this right. havoc. And, and like. And now we have, you know, we've been kind of going back to like that old, old discussion we had, we kind of walked out of the woods and now we're in a modern society and all of the people running it are like, no, this is totally fine. This is totally okay. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is the pinnacle of, of evolution. And meanwhile, everybody's like, but I don't feel so good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that's too true. You know, and it's funny you, uh, when you mentioned you wanted to, uh, you know, follow the the priest route for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my my only my only uh, foray into anything that would consider that, you know, was uh, doing a vipassana meditation. You know, and and so one of the the purposes of that vipassana style is you you have ten day silent meditation, so you can yeah. kind of understand what it's what it's like to dedicate yourself to that practice of being a nun, being a priest, you know, living that monastic type of life, and. Um, and man, that is so hard. That was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life, first off, besides being a parent. And, uh, but I think because it, it quieted my, me down enough to really hear, hear what was going on inside of me. And that, that terrified me. That terrified the hell out of me. So like having that, having that little blip of an understanding of what it's life to, like to live that type of life, it, that was all I needed. You know, and so like the people that can have that dedication, like I, I praise that, you know, I, I give them the, the love that they need. But also at the same time, it's pretty hard to be a householder and be a part of society in this kind of way, too. It, it yeah, it really, <laughs> it really is. It's, it's funny in that way, like 
in looking at kind of the two different ways of being, I guess, like at that point in my life, like the secular life versus, a, you know, a religious vocation. Um, it, I, it, I, I honestly, I think I, I have more admiration for those who choose to raise kids by what they believe to be true in this world. Mm-hmm where truth is a really hard thing to define or, and people don't really want to even accept it's out there, you know? So to be able to stake the claim of like, this is the truth of my experience and raise a family around that, like that is, that is hard. Like it's easy to just cling to an institution and, and, you know, read old books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We we get into conversations a lot about, um, uh, about homeschooling and especially now since COVID, you know, a lot more people are choosing that route. And, and when I grew when I was growing up in the nineties, like homeschooling was, it was made fun of, right. You have the awkward kid that was homeschooled, the overtly religious kid that was homeschooled. They don't have social cues, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, to your point, it's, it's so difficult. And now I look at, you know, my ignorance as a child, and uh, laugh at times, you know, but also it's like, it, it gives me a different perspective of saying like, man, that, that, that family is so brave to be able to do that, to remove their, their kid from this standardized institution and be like, no, there's just, there's gotta be a different way. Maybe it's not mm-hmm. like going to be better for every, like this, this cookie cutter isn't going to fit every single human, but what I feel like I'm doing for my kid and my family, I think this is a better setup. And now I see more people moving in that route and then expanding on on uh, on homeschooling and saying like, hey, okay, so we have ten kids that within this community that wants to do homeschooling. So now we have ten families that are participating in that. And so like everybody, all the kids come over to Adam's house on day one, and we're going to learn this. And then on day two, all the kids go to Jacob's house, and Jacob's going to teach them this, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not a person that's teaching them. You have the community, and then I think that's the beauty, right? You have this community now looking after, tending to, and that kind of takes it back to that village mentality when we lived with 50 or 150 people, and everybody knew everybody's kid. Everybody helped raise the kids. You know, Everybody was a mom, a dad. Everybody did all the things because it was for the benefit of the society, right? Yeah. We weren't creating no. workers. We're creating humans. Well, and there's just, you can't put a price tag on, on that sort of human relationship. Like, and that's, I think what we're seeing in schools a lot right now is like, you know, a deterioration of like people, of kids, like social skills in a weird way. And it's like, man, what would it be like to have them in like an environment where they're like feeling like they're supported by a community and they're safe to, safe to engage with people, um, you know, it's the big thing that always comes up right now are like autism, ADHD, you know, ADD presentations, right? And you have kids that are having either dissociating from their environment or hypervigilant of their environment or basically indifferent to their environment, you know? And going back, I mean, we were, we were talking kind of about some. I don't know if we were recording a psychedelic assisted therapy, but like if somebody feels safe in their environment, they're going to engage in that and release kind of what's happening inside of them into that environment. But if they're not, they're either going to become super anxious about what's happening around them or dissociate from it. Yeah. And we're kind of seeing that happen in the younger generation right now. Um, and it's really hard 
like kind of going back to that discussion about like the EEG database, you know, when that database was created that we have like normative standards that we can assess for ADHD, ADD and autism spectrum disorder, those adults did not grow up in an environment where they were experiencing, you know, active shooter drills. Right. Right. So essentially like the scientific database that we have been kind of creating these standards around one has to question based on how things are going in the public school system right now. Like, is that even still relevant for like a 18 to 22 year old adult? Wow. Yeah. There's a guy named, uh, does the name Zach Bush ring a bell to you? Dr. Zach Bush. So he's, uh, he's been making his way around the podcast and, uh, you know, he's been doing a lot of work for a number of years, but, um, but he's been, you know, starting to speak out a little bit more actively. He's just a great, great approach on humanity. I really love the way he talks, but, but it, you know, you can call this controversial. Uh, but he has this uh, this idea that he talks about with uh, the spectrum disorders you mentioned, like autism, ADHD, ADD, and and he's you know one of the ways he's saying you know we can look at things in whatever way we want to, right? And so one of the ways that he's looking at that this you know this the, all these the the rise in the spectrum disorders um, is we're now entering into a realm of humanity that does not want to be trained, that doesn't want to fit in this box anymore. Cause it doesn't like we're, we're expanding past what we've, what we've created. You know, we're, we're opening our consciousness. We're, we're moving past limitations. We're understanding the, 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 the full breadth of what we can do as humans. Mm-hmm. But we have this large populace of humans that have been trained and this is the way that life is. This is the box you fit in. Right we realize that doesn't fit for everybody. And so now we have these new versions of humans that are being birthed into the world that no matter what we do, no matter how we approach them, they will not, cannot, and won't fucking fit in this box. And there's a beauty to that because we need to start expanding what we thought was the box and we need to get out of that. And so, you know, and, and, you know, this is where the controversial side comes in because there are some forms of, you know, children or adults with autism or spectrum disorders that are, are very non-functional and it's, it's, you know, empathetically, it's sad to see, you know, what, for whatever reason, we don't know why that human's going through what they're going through or birth the way that they were birthed. So there is definitely the, the extreme versions of like, we don't understand, but, but I, I really like aspects of that theory because it really does show me and show, you know, the idea that, that we need to find, and maybe it's a dramatic and drastic way of blowing up the box, but we need to find a way out of this damn box. And if it's creating a, a, a you know, a version of humanity that will not fit into these boxes, no matter what we do, then maybe that's, maybe that's that, that version of blow it up to rebuild it, right? Where we're expanding the parameters seeing how it's not going to work so then we can start to recreate different things so maybe the box is movable and malleable instead of hard set. Well, and I think necessarily so. Like, human beings really are good at surviving. We're so good at surviving. We're so good at adapting and growing. And I think that's kind of the, the, the tension almost is that we do, we have this kind of set standard out there. We have this kind of box for people that's ready for them. It's waiting for them. You know, for some people it's, you know, marble and for some people it's pine, but (laughs) it's there. Um, And that kind of dualistic outcome within like society of like, you're either going to be successful and kind of like in the cream or you're going to be average 
uh, doesn't work. It, it, it doesn't really, it's not really even representative of how like the human mind itself works or how the human system, you know, we have our central nervous system, but then we have a periphery nervous system, you know, we have an autonomic nervous system. Um, we always have all these moving parts inside of us. So the idea of like us being able to create like a thousand year old system that's going to kind of create this one path that people can march down and it's just going to be there forever. I think that was kind of a, maybe a noble quest. <laughs> when I kind of look at like the American project, I love how they used to call it the American experiment over in Europe. Like we'll see how those Americans do <laughs> with this experiment of free thought. Um, I mean, in some ways it's been incredibly successful in breeding like freedom of thought and this massive melting pot. And at the same time, that's the nature of an experiment is you kind of get your outcome and you have to kind of go back and shift. You have to make changes. You have to kind of figure out where to grow and where to narrow. And we've been, we're, we're moving pretty fast right now. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to see the system not respond. Um, and it's also, and it also raises the question like, can it? Yeah. I hope. Yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, I think it was in the twenties when Henry Ford, Henry Ford was one of the people that pioneered assembly lines. And, um, so we're going to have this section of the assembly line do this, and that's all you're going to do. You're going to put these four bolts in those four holes, and then it's going to move down the line. This next person is going to put four nuts on those four bolts, and then it's going to move down the line. And that's all you do for eight hours a day. You put those four bolts in those four holes, you move it down the line, four bolts and full holes, move down the line. And in theory, it worked great. You know, people got very proficient at what they were doing. They could put those four bolts in four holes and two seconds, push it down the line. We're all good to go. So it went from making cars in a week to making, you know, thousands of cars in a day. But what we didn't see and what we are now faced with continuously today is that what that does to the human being is so toxic and, and, and horrible to do the same thing over and over again, over and over again, lather, rinse, repeat, do that day in and day out. It drives the human crazy, right? It, and mentally, mm -hmm. it unstabilizes it, it, it them. Physically, it unstabilizes them. And so I think to the point that you were making, it's like, we've we've been in that assembly line now like with with the way that we've uh, you know pumped humans out into the school system out of the school system into the next school out of school into the careers out of careers into families and all this shit over and over and over and over and over again we've been preaching this is the way it works and if you're oh god help if you're of a, a homosexual nature oh my god you've blown up the system now you're you're not doing it right oh my god now you're transgender now it's you know but i think that's the beauty of the, what's happening in the world right now is we're blowing up the assembly line like there's no place for that on the assembly line so like we're not going to change humanity so change the change the application, change the assembly line, right? This is one of those opportunities, I think. You know, it's been, what, about 100 years we've been doing assembly line work, 100 years of that kind of uh, schooling mentality, 100 years of all this shit, at least in the West. That's not a long time when you think about it. That's like a human's lifespan. We can change that shit. You know, we have it yeah. within our capacity, but it's it's understanding that it's not working. It's understanding that we're going to have to change some shit. It's going to probably, you know, wreck the, the work system for a little while, but... If, if it's for the better of humanity to take the assembly line out of it and look at the individual again instead of the masses as an average, like, let's start that process. Let's get towards that shit. Well, and I, you kind of mentioned being a ritual human earlier. Mm -hmm. um, 
it does feel like they kind of tried to strip us away from that natural way of being where it was like, you know, you go to, you wake up when the sun rises, you go to sleep when it's dark, you know, and then suddenly it's like, boom, incandescent lights. Like, no, we're going to do this instead. And it's like, you know, you raise as many kids as you can support. It's like, no, the standard is 2.5, you know, (laughs) (laughs) too many and you're greedy, too few. And like, there's something wrong with you. Um, And we, they kind of created all these false standards for people to try to live by. And it just became so far removed from what people's intuitive sense of like who they should be or how they should be is that now when people do bring up stuff like breath work and mindfulness and it's like, Oh, that's like kind of some woo woo sort of stuff from like the far East in an ancient time. And then they try it and they're like, wow, I now feel better than I have in the last year. The next question is, why didn't I know about this? Mm-hmm. And then the next, the, the follow-up response is, okay, who am I going to go tell about this? Right. And I think that's what we're seeing is this is like, they, they, it's like they, the illusion got pushed a little bit too far yeah. and then people started getting sick and then they started wondering why they were getting sick. And when they opened their eyes to it all, it was like, oh, we just forgot. Yeah. Yeah. And there is that, you know, that remembering, right? It's not only are we remembering, you know, a thought, but as we remember a thought or remember an experience, remember the beauty of life, it reestablishes the member of the human, right? We're Mm -hmm. like remembering us as a member of a human, right? And then through that, the member of the human race. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's that individual again, you know, yes, we need, you know, the way our society is set up is that we need some kind of cohesiveness, you know, through the masses. But I think we've ingrained that enough to where we can start to look at the individual again and start to embrace how unique that individual is. Because, like, nobody can be a human like you. Nobody can experience humanity and the emotions and the, everything that, that's going on like Jacob can. And same thing with Adam. And same thing with everybody else in this world. Like, you're here for a reason like find that uniqueness and all the weird shit that you do, all the weird things. Like for me, it's like podcasting, energy work, sound healing, fucking the minute amount of quantum physics that I try to understand, religious texts, all this shit. All that may just sound like gibberish to somebody else, but for whatever reason tickles my fancy. And when I can find a way to 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 move all of those beautiful passions together into the way that only I can create it, just like only way you can create the knowledge that you have, that's our actualization moments. That's, those are those yeah. gifts that we have to humanity. The reason, I feel like, the reason that we're here in the first place. Like, it's not like this big alter, I'm here for this sole purpose. No. I'm here right now because I just figured out how to weave all this weird shit together into something that I can no, present to humanity. Exactly. I mean, I, I and I, I believe that I think that we're here to, like, heroically and creatively live our own lives. And, like, that's like in the act of doing so serves as kind of a template for those around us. Hmm. Cause I can't, I can't tell, I can't even tell like my, my, my brother or my like the friends, like exactly what their like good is, you know, or like what they, what their like perfect poem of the world is, you know, it's like, they're, they're going to write that themselves, hmm. but like, 
the only way that I can really communicate or uh, that I've found personally that like I can communicate like those values to the people around me in my life is by boldly choosing to live that sort of life myself. Because it is the the dynamic of all those things coming together and how they all fit and how you're able to kind of communicate that in an integrated way. Like, you know, the substance of it doesn't always matter, man. I think there's a lot of enlightened mechanics out there. A hundred percent, man. God damn it. Yeah, I've met I've just the most random people in this world that have found some kind of peace that I could even couldn't even fathom around that, you know, might ha- not even have like what I would consider a peaceful practice. They don't meditate. They don't fucking breath work. They don't, you know, sit and chant. They don't. They've just found a way just to be and to understand life and to understand like this is just the way this is my entrance and my acceptance of life. And the way that I present myself is the way that I'm going to receive back. And I found peace with that. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's, I mean, shit, that's, that's it, right? Like, don't we just want to be? Yeah. Like, isn't that what this all boils down to? Like the kids in school just want to be kids. Yeah. You know, the adults just want to raise happy families. Like we all just like, nobody's asking for anything absurd at this point. I don't think (laughs) the reasonable request out there. Um, There's just a lot of stuff that gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't need a mansion. I just need basic stuff. But with that basic stuff creates the the beauty that life can be, you know, we take care of the basic needs of life and we'll see how life can flourish. Yeah. And and usually it surprises you. Yeah. Most definitely, man. Most definitely. Well, shit, brother. I feel like I could talk to you all day, man. Uh, (laughs) I know we're going to have to do another one. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, So, uh, so while we wrap it up here, man, what, uh, where can people like find you? I know you said you're in Spokane, uh, but if people want to reach out to you, just kind of look at what you're working on or maybe schedule a session with you. What's uh, some, some yeah. ways to get you? I mean, you can contact Anchor Counseling Services. Um, our website is anchorspokane.com. Um, that's where I'm working out of right now. Uh, also, though, me and my partner have been working on kind of creating an integrated wellness center in Hilliard, um, hmm. trying to bring in some of I mean, some of the modalities we kind of touched on, like some biofeedback, um, a little bit more of a person-centered kind of attachment-based approach to therapy, as well as bringing in some of those somatic um, approaches and modalities like breath work, yoga, uh, sound healing. Um, so that is Alchemy Hilliard is that project that we're working on. Yeah. So. And you guys do uh, some AV entrainment there also? Yes, that is kind of man. We could spend an entire podcast. I know. That. know. <laughs> Audio visual entrainment for those of you that don't know, it's a pretty incredible experience. Uh, yeah, we can essentially use different light frequencies to entrain the brain uh, into different states of consciousness, either grounded or kind of transpersonal and and kind of static in a way. Wow. So. I've had a I've I've had one experience with uh, with AV entrainment um, and uh, it was amazing. I, I had a thirty minute session. So the the uh, the sensory deprivation tank that I go to in this area, uh, the guy that runs it, he's fantastic, and he uh, knows I'm a little weird. And came in one day and he was like, "Hey, before you go in for your float." do you want to try this uh, light disc that I got? I'm like, yeah, totally, man. So he threw some headphones on me, sat me in a chair and put me about like, you know, about two feet and uh, put the disc about two feet in front of me and uh-huh. closed my eyes. And Holy Christ, man, the, you know, the, 
the the audio plus the the light thing and it took about maybe 30 seconds for me to finally get my brain to turn off the fact that there's lights flashing mm-hmm. in front of me and just lean into it but uh but I did that as like a 20 30 minute session and then I went into a 90 minute float deprivation float Woo, man there were some some ideas that came into that that was really amazing good experience yeah um people report seeing fractals people report like kind of intense dissociative states um people have it's actually been used for like uh, jaw tension so sometimes people would just be like wow my neck is so like relaxed in a weird way yeah oh yeah it's been used in like dental operations so it's an incredibly unique technology and you know we we stumbled onto it and we've been kind of exploring it and figuring out how to how to really optimize it oh yeah so Beautiful. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's flag that. We'll bracket that for a future conversation. Cause I, I've already got a, a few notes here to, uh, to circle back with. So, <laughs> All right. Good. uh, but Jacob, thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate your hey, time. And thank uh, you, Adam. This was a pleasure. Yeah, most definitely, man. I, I love, I just love hearing people and, and, and just seeing the joy and the work that they do and uh, just appreciate what you do for humanity, brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, brother. We'll have you back soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for spending time with Jacob and I. Uh, please check out the show notes for ways to get in touch with Jacob or also ways to support the show. Obeisance and love. We'll see you next time.